What is a Christian? Uh, my name is Bruce, and I graduated from a, a Christian counseling school just a few weeks ago. And um, as uh, we were at convocation, the uh, founder of the college was giving a prayer, and he said, you can, we're going to pray now, and you can do whatever you would like to do. But I'm going to leave my eyes open while I pray, because I am in the presence of the children of God, the glorious children of God, and I'm going to leave my eyes open and look at you while I pray. So I just had to think about that in relationship to that song. I'm no longer a slave of fear. You are a child of God. So my name is Bruce, and uh, I carry a lot of different roles. I'm the husband to Carol, the uh, father to, uh, to Bryce and April, and kind of to Mark and Amy, and the Bapa to Isaac and to Joel and to Beatrix, and then Peter and Ellie. Not them all. And I'm also uh, just recently become a mental health counselor which is a new role in my life, and it's really changed the way I look at things. So my history a little bit was I got out of high school, college, and went out into the ministry. Spent about 15, 17 years as a preacher. Then another, about the same amount of time, uh, running call centers, which is a whole different set of experiences. And then about five years ago, I started feeling something in my heart. and said, I want to do something more for people. And so I decided to come here and go to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and become a mental health counselor. One of the things that I learned there that was particularly insightful was the idea of a lens. The idea that we see the world through a set of lenses. So if I take these off, you become amazingly fuzzy people. I put them on, you become different people to me. So one of the things that psychology has learned, particularly in the last 100 years, is how important your perception of the world is. Uh, you probably recognize the name Freud. Freud believed that who you are and what you did was almost totally determined by the drives that were within you. It was entirely a matter of the way that you had evolved, basically, to be the genetic person that you are. That held sway for about 20 or 30 years, and then a whole other group of scientists arose who said, wait, there's, there's your genetics, but there's also your environment. The same set of genes in a different family, in a different culture, comes out to be a different person. And so that became sort of the accepted belief. And then around the time of World War II, they began to explore the idea of lenses. And one of the leaders in this movement was a man named Viktor Frankl. And some of you have recognized his name. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Life. Viktor Frankl was a, a Jew in Europe during the time of World War II. And inevitably, he ended up in a concentration camp. He was there for a little bit over a year until he was released. We all know concentration camps were, camps were unbelievably inhumane places. And most everybody died. But Victor didn't. And so after the war, he wanted to understand why some people survived while so many others didn't. And there's a lot of factors involved, but one of the things that he found is that people who survived had a certain way of looking at life. And I want to read you a quote. He says, I came to understand how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, if it be only for a moment in the contemplation of his beloved, even when he is in a position of utter desolation. In that position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in any positive action, 
when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in a right way, in an honorable way, in such a position, a man, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, may achieve fulfillment. Now, when Victor wrote that, he was thinking particularly of his wife, who went into the concentration camp with him. But as he stepped back, as he began to explore that idea, he found that two things marked the people that survived the concentration camps. Number one, they could see value in suffering. They could see purpose in meaning and suffering. And secondly, they had believed in love as an overall power. So what I'd like to do today in the few minutes we have together is take a look at a passage out of the book of Matthew in which Jesus gives us a set of lenses to look at our life in such a way that it has the power to change the way that we live. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time we spent together this morning. And Father, when Amy prayed for me this morning, she prayed that I would have joy in speaking this message. So my prayer for the people here is that, that we would share in that joy. And that as we're here this morning, as we get the privilege of thinking about your word and what it means to our life, that we share in the joy that you and your son and the Holy Spirit share throughout eternity, that a little bit of that joy would be with us today. And Father, as that joy touches us, may it change us and then allow us to share the joy to the world desperately in need of it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So if lenses are so important, it's not surprising that when Jesus pulled aside his, his 12 men that he chose to be his followers, and they were followed, followed by maybe a few hundred, maybe even as many as a few thousand men and women up to the hillside of Galilee, and he began to lay out his manifesto for the kingdom of God, that he would start with things that talk about how we look at life. In fact, in doing that, he was really only echoing what God did when he inspired the writer of Genesis. If you thought about Genesis, Genesis doesn't start with a command. It doesn't start with telling us what to do. It starts with explaining to us what we're seeing around us. So the, the magnificent world that I see today is not a cosmos. That's the accidental miracle of billions of years of history. God wants us to know that it was the plan of the creator to bring about this world. And when I look at you and I look at myself, I'm not seeing the most advanced emotional, intellectual, technological of the created animals. I am seeing what God calls the image. Let us make man in our image. So as I look at you, as I see, look at me, God wants me to know that I am made somehow to be like him. And I believe that means that we're relational beings. That the key thing that makes God God is it's a father, it's a son, and a Holy Spirit. And he has put that into our lives where he has designed us not to live by ourselves on an island, but has designed us to live in relationship with other people in so many different ways. So God started in the book of Genesis by giving us lenses. Jesus starts in the book of Matthew by giving us lenses. If you'd like to read along, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Though I am going to start in the message translation, which is a little different than most of you are used to. But here, Jesus starts out, he says, this is how life really works. This is what's really good and bad about life. And he says in verse 3, 
You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Oh. With less of you, there's more of God in his rule. You're blessed when you've lost what is most important for you. Because when you've lost what's most important to you, then you can have the things that can't be bought. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That moment, you're embraced and you're embraced by the one who loves you more than any other. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's the food and drink for the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. In the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get into your inside world. Your inside world is right with God. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Hello, politicians. That's when you discover who you really are in your place in God's family. And you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Now, that's kind of hard to fathom that we're blessed when we're persecuted. And Jesus must have understood that because he goes on to say, not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Even give a cheer. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And you know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. So, you know, as we look at the life around us, Jesus says there's some things that are good that we wouldn't know about it otherwise. You know, if you were just to open the newspaper today, you would think the number of votes you get, how many dollars you make, whether you have a pair of sneakers with your name on it, and of course the ultimate side of success in our world is how many Twitter followers do you have. Jesus says none of that matters. It's these matters of the heart that make life worthwhile. And then he turns from looking outside to looking at yourself. So how do we look at ourselves? And I'm going to switch back to the New Living Translation. And when I read verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. In the same way, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. When I was in school, I had my view of these verses changed by the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was actually a contemporary with uh, Viktor Frankl, though Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German, didn't go into the, term, into the uh, prison camps. But he, as he looked at these verses, pointed out that these verses are not commands. It's not Jesus saying, you are to be the salt of the earth. You are to be the light of the world. He says, 
you are. It's not something we are to do. It is something that we are. And Dietrich showed this in his own life. He was a German Lutheran pastor. Came into the ministry in the late 1920s. And as the 30s came around and Adolf Hitler began to come to power, there was a split in the German church. Most of the German church, really to their shame, bought in to the nationalistic message by the Nazi party, and they became the state church. And the sermons that they preached and the works that they did lined up with the efforts of Nazism. But there was a small handful of Lutherans, pastors, and churches who said, wait, this is the wrong lens to look at. And they were called the Confessing Church. And Bonhoeffer was one of those pastors. And of course, as, the, as Germany marched towards World War II, the Confessing Church became more and more an enemy of the state. And uh, many of the Confessing pastors were arrested, their churches were destroyed. Bonhoeffer was a little different because he had achieved, achieved some international notoriety. And so he was well-known worldwide, and Hitler, as he tried to balance out his building for the war, along with maintaining this image of not being a warlike country, uh, didn't feel that, that he could arrest Bonhoeffer. In 1939, so we're talking just a year before the war starts, Bonhoeffer uh, accepted a position in New York City to come to the United States and to teach and preach. It had all the signs of, a, of the miracle working of God. He at this time was recognized as a worldwide as a, as a mighty man of God. And what a great thing to take him out of the danger of Germany and bring him to the security of the United States. He would be safe as well as he would have a great platform to spread the message of Christianity. So Bonhoeffer and his family came in 1939, but they stayed only for a few months. You see, Bonhoeffer knew that he was salt and light. And more than that, he knew that he was salt and light to the German people. And he could not be that in New York City. So after six months, he went back to Germany in 1939. Uh, the war started, and because of uh, some political adroitness and some ability to hide, whatever, he remained a free man and continued to write. Until late in 1943, there was a plot to, uh, to kill Hitler that failed. And uh, Bonhoeffer was implicated in that plot, and really to this day, uh, we're not really sure whether he was involved or not. There's some things he wrote that make us think that he was. Anyway, he was arrested. Um, continued to be able to write from prison until about two months before the end of the war in April of 1945. As the Nazi regime was crumbling and as the Allied armies were advancing, uh, he was taken one Sunday uh, out from the prison and was executed for being salt. Liked. So my hope for us today is not particularly that we get shot, not that we do any great and fantastic things, it's not likely any of us will be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but my hope is that in some way we can begin to see ourselves as salt and light. I am not just a person living in Seattle in 2017, I am something created by God. I am that child of God that he has placed here because he wants to bring salt to a flavorless world, because he wants to bring light to a dark world. And that will happen as I live out the call that he has given to me. So I told you that I was a pastor. And as a pastor, I did a lot of pastoral counseling. 
And as a pastoral counselor, I spent most of my time talking to people who, who were in trouble. They, they were in distress. They were in pain. And they would come and say, what do I do? And I would use my Bible. Back then, it, it was actually a physical book to uh, show them what God wanted them to do. And actually, it was was an enjoyable part of the ministry. And a number of people were able to radically change their lives by me showing them what God said they could do in a situation. But there was an amazing number of other people who would sit in my office, they would read what God said, and they would know what to do, but they couldn't do it. They would go out, and they would do the same thing over and over again. They hated it. I hated it. But they couldn't seem to stop. So one of the things I've learned in the past four years is why that happened. One of the reasons it's happened is that what we do is determined not so much by what we know, but by the lenses that we use. And people were coming to me, and I was giving them this good advice, and it was falling on dead ears because of their lenses, and particularly the way that they saw themselves. Another thing that's come from my counseling work is that most of us are deathly afraid to look at ourselves. Now, there are some exceptions. There are a few people who really, really understand that they are children of God, and they get their identity in Christ, and they can look at themselves openly and honestly, and they can see the flaws, they can see the strengths, and they're happy with it. There's another group of people, maybe a little bit larger group of people, who look at themselves and they see only perfection. Everything they do is right, and all the problems of the world are other people. We call those, in the counseling world, narcissists. And there's a group of people. But if I want to strike terror into the person sitting across the room from me in the counseling room, I just have to ask them in some way to tell me about the deepest part of their heart. To take a self-inventory. Most of us have been taught through the hurts of life, through our own mistakes, through the words of parents who meant to do well, the friends who thought they were helping, that there's something wrong with us. And that, you know, it's not a, it's not a comfortable thing to look deep inside ourselves. Because the fear is way down there at the bottom. It's just in something that's too awful. If you knew who I really was, you would turn your back and walk away. And that's the worst thing I could ever face. So what I want to do, and I hope that we can do together, is change that lens and begin to give you the confidence to say, when you look deep down inside, you see what Jesus sees, which is what? Salt. Let me tell you a story. Silas is an, is an old man, probably eight decades done through life, and life has not been particularly easy for Silas. He um, grew up a Christian, was a Christian all of his life. Much of his life, he was a pastor. For some reason, he uh, was a pastor with a group of people, a denomination who, whatever their understanding of grace, made them rather contentious people. So a lot of Contention, fights in their church, and many times those fights were between pastors and elders, and so a lot of those fights, and you know, he, um, which meant that he worked in a lot of small churches, and he sort of went from church to church, and even though he was a man of peace himself, he um, got fired 
two or three times. Um, family life wasn't particularly easy, too. We had a loving, loving wife, though about 10 years ago, she went through a long and painful death from cancer, and so he's lived alone for 10 years. His children, like most children, were good and bad, um, though he spent a lot of the last few years trying to raise a granddaughter that really struggles with the basic principles of Christian morality. Christian morality. So his life has been sort of a mixed bag, and now he finds himself in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. How many of you have been to Fort Sumner, New Mexico? That's kind of what I suspected. Um, on the particular day that we're talking about, uh, Silas uh, needs to get a haircut. So he goes to the barbershop, but when you live in a town of a thousand people, sometimes the barbershop is just closed because the barber's doing something else. This made uh, Silas a bit nervous because he was going um, on a trip next week. He actually now in his later years has a ministry to preachers and to churches who are having trouble fighting. And he has a trip next week planned and he wants to look good. And so he decides to go to the, to the county seat to get his hair cut, a whopping megalopolis of 40,000 people. And uh, he gets there, and, uh, or he's on his way there when a truck in front of him has one of those uh, tires explode big piece of rubber comes off, he can't turn fast enough, and it hits his tire and uh, flips up under the fender and pushes the fender into the tire. So he has to pull off the side of the road. This is New Mexico in the late spring, so it's 90 degrees at 10 o'clock in the morning. He gets out and looks at the car and is not scared, but kind of wonders, what's going to happen now? And there in the background, he hears the roar of a Harley Davidson, and uh, it's slowing down. And it pulls in beside him. So he looks back, and there's this great big Harley Davidson dude with all of the, the markings and everything. And he comes up and says, what's going on? Silas, with a little trembling in his voice, says, I don't know what to do. And so this guy, his name was Art, says, I got some tools. And he walks back. And as he walks away, Silas notices that on the back of his, his jacket, in other words, I'm the Christian the devil warned you about. <laughs> So Silas and Art have a good talk, and Silas bends the fender out of the way, and Silas has the chance to tell him about his ministry, and as they go, you know, Silas is sort of a reserve guy, this big old Harley Davidson guy, gives him a big hug, and as they break away, $600 bill in his pocket, and Silas goes to town. Well, wouldn't you know it, when he gets to the town, he finds two or three barbershops, they're all busy, and he doesn't know quite what to do, so he goes to a local Walgreens store, and there on the steps next to the store is a, is a young woman. She's most noticeable because she's got blue hair, which may be normal for Seattle, but is a little different in New Mexico. And she's, she's crying, has a lot of makeup on, not the kind of person that necessarily an 80-year-old man would well relate to. But something happened to him, and Silas said, normally I probably just would have walked past, but he said, um, can I help you? What can I do? And through her tears, she points out that her boyfriend has just kicked her out. That um, she doesn't have a job. And she doesn't know what to do. So Silas, just making conversations, says, well, what kind of work are you looking for? I'll have a hairstylist. Aha. So actually, they work out a plan, and they go to a friend's house, and she cuts his hair. And... Uh, he pays her 20 bucks, which he says is twice what he used to, which is, again, a sign he's in a small town and not Seattle. Um, and uh, while she's cutting his hair, he happens to recall that one of these barber shops that he uh, went through had a help wanted sign. 
So he takes her to the barber shop, and she gets a job. And so he takes her back home so she can get her stuff, and they briefly uh, exchange phone numbers. He says a prayer for her, and because he's a preacher, he leads her a copy of the Gospel of John. And he's off on his way. His haircut's done, ready to go home. But now it is 110 degrees, and he doesn't really want to drive right now. And so he thinks, where can I go to someplace that's cool? And uh, the movie theater. But, of course, there was nothing there he wanted to watch that day. And they thought, what about the hospital? You see, Silas spent a lot of time at the hospital. His wife went through cancer treatment. So he went to the hospital, and he said, um, to, he said, is there anybody here suffering from cancer like the hospital? So he spends the afternoon uh, talking to cancer patients and just sharing, just life with them. On his way out of town, he happens to notice the, uh, the barber shop. So he goes in and checks in with her and she's cutting hair. And he goes, oh, I had something I forgot to give you. And you can kind of guess what it was. He hands her the $100 bill. Salt light. Nobody got saved that day as far as we know. But that's salt. And that's light. That's planting the seed that makes a difference. Interesting, Silas writes a couple things that I find really interesting about that story. First of all, he says that wasn't a normal day. And oftentimes when we hear stories like this, we're kind of left with the idea this should happen every day. The fact is it's incredibly rare. That if we're being salt and light, most of the time we do it and we don't even know what's going on. But every once in a while, we get a chance to see what's going on. The other thing is that while it was a normal day, it was a normal day. He was just doing the kind of things he usually did, with maybe a little extra urging from the Spirit of God. So I want to give you two things to take with you this morning, two things that I want you to look for in your life. Not particularly asking you to do anything, but I want to ask you to watch for them, because my whole theme this morning is I want you to think about yourself in a different way. A couple of things that will happen to you and to me as we begin to think about salt and light. The first is that as we think of ourselves as salt, we'll get more engaged in life. You knew I'd have a salt shaker at some point. <laughs> so salt in a shaker is really worthless, right? Doesn't do anybody any good. On the other hand, what would happen, sorry about that, if I did this? One of my childhood memories is a time when we all got together for a big Thanksgiving dinner and somebody made the mashed potatoes with tablespoons of salt instead of teaspoons. There were a lot of good cooks in that room and they all tried to fix it, but you can't fix too much salt. Being salt is not a matter of some great act that you do any one time. It's just a regular way of staying engaged with people. You may recognize the name Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl, was a, Cheryl is a, a Facebook executive, one of the senior staff there. And uh, she was in Mexico about three years ago, and in her 40s with two young kids. Her husband was in an exercise room exercising, and uh, when they came to get him, he was dead on the floor. At first they thought he might have fallen from the, from the treadmill and hit his head, but it turned out he had some sort of a congenital heart disease, uh, kind of a long T syndrome, and uh, it just was his time. So she had to come back with just her two children as a widow. And you know, tons of money, lots of people around her, 
a great company to work for. If anybody should be able to survive that kind of tragedy, she could. But it was so tough. And as she writes a book a couple years later called Option B, she, uh, she writes about one of the things that happened was that she began to become disengaged from people. Partly because she felt like her pain and her grief was so great that she, couldn't, she didn't know how to deal with other people in the presence of that. But also because other people started to pull away from her. And talking to those people afterwards, she said, she found that those people, they loved her and they cared for her, but they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. What do you do to a young mom of 42 whose husband is just, what do you say to her? And so they pulled away. So she found herself increasingly isolated, except for a few people who basically had the attitude, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, but I'm not letting you away from me. And there were those few people who stayed engaged with her, and they carried her through. That should be us. We should be the people who stay engaged with the world around us, no matter what's going on. The problem is, it's tough to stay engaged with people because they irritate us. (laughs) And oftentimes, the more people need us, the more they irritate us. So I want to share something with you that I've learned in the, in the counseling world. I can't really quote this in the Bible, though I think it's there. And that is, when people irritate you, instead of talking about them, think about yourself. I'll give you an illustration. So last week, we went to Kulon Park Saturday night to, uh, to get some ivers. Long line out the door. So as we're sitting there in line, I'm noticing the clerk up front, who's incredibly inefficient. And I am getting more and more irritated with her. But, you know, I was able to change my attitude by saying this. You know what? I don't like to wait in long lines. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I had this picture that we would rush in here, get this food, and go out by the lake. So instead of looking at her, I'm describing my own. And actually, that's one of the things that we try to do to teach people who are just having a tough time getting along in life. And they tend to see all these people around them, they're doing all these things that are bad to them. And to help them understand, the real problem is the pain in your own life. And you get away from that pain in your own life by labeling other people. And you can undo that by instead of focusing and saying, what's wrong with this clerk, saying, I don't like lines then I have a choice. I can stay in the line because I like the fish, or I can go somewhere else. So I think this is very similar to what Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, don't judge. I think he's giving us some insight, because when we label other people, then they become the problem, and we can't engage with them. But when we take those difficult moments and say, this doesn't feel good to me, it leaves us the ability to continue to engage with them. So let me encourage you to watch for signs of engagement. As you become salt and light, watch for a greater willingness to just talk to the blue-haired girl that's crying at Walgreens, to talk to the motorcycle guy with the big, scary tattoos. The other thing to think about is that light is placed intentionally. 
So it says that we are to be the light of the world like a city set on a hill. Uh, that word set actually has a connotation of intentionally placed. So one of the things that salt and light does is they have a sense that God has placed me here for a reason. It's not an accident. I was playing a game with a, with a, a young uh, client and we were asking questions, we were taking turns and the question that came to me is how many times have you moved? It took me a long time to answer. Somewhere in the mid-twenties, the number of times that we moved, almost, not quite every other year I've moved. Um, I don't necessarily, necessarily like that. And some of you are shaking your heads and you're just counting on three fingers how many places that you've lived. And there almost was a sense of shame to say, oh, why have I lived in such a family, conducted my life in such a way that I moved to so many different places? But yet if I see myself as light, I can say, hmm, God must have a sense of humor. He must have wanted me in a whole bunch of different places. So it changes my whole perspective of my life. And frankly, this has been a very practical thing for me. So we came here from Florida. And I want to thank you for giving, and this is our third, we just finished our third winter. I want to thank you for giving us two nice winters before this last winter. And, uh, you know, there were many, many days when I said, why? Why? And then the answer was, well, Bryce and Amy and Mark and April and their kids. And then a sense of this is where God has placed me so I can do some good. He and I have had a couple arguments on why we couldn't do this in Florida, but at the end of the day, it's given me strength to go on by saying, yeah, lots of rain, high housing costs, but this is where God has placed me to be a light. So, what do you see when you look at yourself? Yeah, there's some flaws, there's some problems, but there's salt and light. Think about your own story for a moment. There was somebody in your life that was salt and light to you. For me, it was my parents, then some people, Pat, Carol, Tom, Arch, Don, Myron, Rick, different people who, I think if you looked at them through the world's eyes, wouldn't be very special people. But yet they were salt and light to me. And so what I'm trying, when I'm looking at myself at salt and light, I'm just doing to myself what generations of Christians have done since the time of Christ have just been salt and light moving towards us. And that's what I invite you to do. Let me close with just one last comment. I said I was a mental health counselor. I really am a Christian mental health counselor. So what is that? Actually, I spent a whole year writing a research paper on what that is. And actually, it's, it's pretty fascinating because sometimes a Christian mental health counselor means you're a Christian who's a counselor, and uh, you kind of don't keep, you, the two don't actually meet. You're just a Christian, but you do all just psychology and psychiatry and, and have no, they don't really mix. On the other hand, there's some Christian counselors who just say, I just say what the Bible says, 
You've got to believe the Bible, follow the Bible, and that's all you have to do. I guess when I think of myself as a Christian mental health counselor, I think of myself as a mental health counselor who wants to be salt and light. Whatever that means to the person sitting in front of me, to the person I meet at the grocery store, to the person in my neighborhood, I am salt and light. Let's pray. Father, so often the lens that we look at ourselves has to do with what do we have to do to be good enough. This morning, help us to use a lens that focuses on this is what God has done to transform us. This is what God has made me into. And by faith, I accept that and I live that out. Thank you, God, for giving us people that we can engage with, people that often frustrate us, that irritate us. Help us, Father, to, to be able to separate that irritation and be able to, to see that much of it comes from our own pain, our own way of looking at things, and to be willing to see that other person as, as you see them, as someone made in the image of God that needs to be reclaimed so that they, too, can be a child of God. Help us to stay engaged. Help us to see where we are as being the place where we belong. Father, I suspect there's more than one person in this world who, who wishes on a regular basis, in this room, that wishes on a regular basis they were somewhere else or in some other position. Father, give them the faith to know that you have made them light right where you placed them. Father, we're thankful for those who are salt and light for us. And we ask that you would allow us to be salt and light to this city. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.